was laying the responsibility of welcome and hospitality on small local communities people who know each other and i love that idea because it is so hard for us to think at a national level but it is much easier for me to call my colleagues on guildford's call on guildford's campus and say hey maybe we should get together and do this hello everyone this is claire mattis and you're listening to seeking refuge a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees and the world events that affect them Today, I'll be speaking with Dia Abdo about the organization she founded called Every Campus a Refuge, as well as her new book, American Refuge. So for our listeners, um, I'm Claire Mattis, hosting with Dia Abdo here, and we're going to be talking about, first of all, your book. Also, I watched your TED Talk a few weeks ago, and I was it was amazing. So I'd love to talk about that if you have time as well. Absolutely. Okay, great. Well, first, I just want to ask maybe, can you just talk about like a general introduction of yourself, your career, kind of where you're from, um, everything like that for our viewers? Absolutely. And um, thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm. Uh, my name is uh, Dia Abdo, and uh, I am a professor of English at Guilford College, which is a, a small Quaker uh, school in Greensboro, North Carolina. So I'm very close to you all. Um I was born and raised in Jordan to Palestinian refugee parents who were displaced from uh, Palestine to Jordan in 1967. And my siblings were born um, in Jordan years later. So I was born in in Jordan um, and was raised there. I went to undergraduate school in Jordan and came to the US as a graduate student uh, to pursue a, a PhD in English literature. And um, I came to the U.S. in 1996. I was um, a student here, of course, during um, the events of September 11th, um, which really um, affected the trajectory of my life, as it did for for many people. I had come to the U.S. um, to pursue um, really an expertise in American literature, especially interested in poetry. And after September 11th, I found that a lot of people were interested in asking me to speak about Arab and Muslim women. And then I became more interested in learning about Arab and Muslim women. And I became interested in Arab women writers and and Arab and Islamic feminisms. And that became my area of research. Um, And at Guilford College, I teach American literature, but I also teach post-colonial literature, world literature, um, Arab women writers, African women writers, and Arab and Islamic feminisms. I went back to Jordan to teach um, in 2003, and I was there for five years. My last year there, I encountered a very challenging experience at the university where I was teaching at the time, um, really a violation of my um, academic freedom, and decided to come back to the United States and um, came for this job at Guilford College. Um, I came back in 2008, and I've been there since then. So it's been about 15 years now that I've been at Guilford College. And in 2015, I um, was watching what was happening to Syrian refugees. And for me, of course, the refugee issue is very personal, deeply personal. It's the experience of my parents and my grandparents. When they arrived in Jordan, they lived in refugee camps and really struggled to integrate and feel included in the Jordanian community. So it was a a story that I had um, grown up on and and really felt deeply 
And I was very much, of course, connected to the Syrian community because we're from the same region and, and, and share a language and, and um, you know, a lot of sort of cultural similarities. Um, and so I was I was watching very intently what was happening to Syrian refugees and felt that uh, we could do more here at Guilford College and higher education more broadly. And so I founded um, Every Campus a Refuge in 2015. Um, but I'm sure we'll be talking more about Every Campus at Refuge. So I'll stop there. Yes, no, that's a great introduction. Thank you. I think that gives a good context um, to everything we'll be talking about. So yeah, I do. I also want to point out, I remember I was in high school in Indiana in 2015 and there was, um, I would go to like college campuses for um, like club meetings, I guess, for different clubs I was in. And they talked a lot about the Syrian um, refugee crisis. But for me, it was the first time I'd heard about refugees. Um, so it's, you know, it's interesting because refugees have existed so much longer before this. Um, but I feel like that's kind of the start in the U.S. where people talked about it, at least in my experience. So when I was listening to your TED talk about this, I remember you said something that I thought was really profound. You said, what is our complicity and accountability as institutions built on the lands of the displaced? Um, and I thought that was just a really, it, it applies to USC a lot because we have a lot of issues with, you know, what we're built on. A lot of Black communities were pushed out um, when USC was built. And it just had me thinking about, you know, that overall concept. So when do you get the idea um, to found your organization or when, when did you get the idea to kind of use college campuses as a refuge? The idea really came from Pope Francis. Um, as I mentioned, I was struggling with what to do with myself. I'm sure a lot of people were because we were watching what was happening to Syrian refugees. And it was, of course, horrific. I mean, um, we see it still today that people on the move, desperate to seek safety and security, um, are really trying to find that safety and security by, by any means necessary. And so they will entrust themselves to a smuggler, or if the only avenue out is a boat, um, you know, they'll get on that boat. Um, and oftentimes those things are not safe and people lose their lives on that journey. And so the particular moment that I think moved a lot of people, as you say, the refugee issue has been um, ongoing for a long time. There's a, nearly 110 million displaced people in the world today. 38 million of them are designated as refugees eligible for resettlement. And that, you know, didn't that number didn't happen overnight. It's been happening for a long time. But the, there were particular images that we were seeing of Syrian refugees perishing along their journey that um, really were mobilizing people and making people um, encounter this issue perhaps for the first time. And it was the image of the little boy Aylan Kurdi that I think captured the world. And Aylan Kurdi was a little boy, he was three years old at the time. He got on a boat with his mother and his brother and the boat capsized, they all drowned. But Aylan's body was found um, on the shores of a, of a town in Turkey. And it, he it looked like he was sleeping, right? And a photographer had happened upon the scene when his body was, when Aylan's body was discovered. And he took a picture of Aylan. And that image of Aylan, um, I think, really did something that so many other statistics and facts um, that we were hearing and seeing in the news didn't, right? It, it, it allowed us to see in Aylan our own children, right? For many of us who were parents at the time, especially, it was it was deeply moving um, and painful, and mobilized a lot of us. Um, but I think what mobilized me was Pope Francis's response, who called on every parish in Europe 
to host a refugee family. And it was in response to what was happening to Syrian refugees. And I think very much in response to that particular image. And so that idea of every parish host a family, he was breaking it down. He was saying every small community do this one thing. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was really remarkable because he wasn't calling on countries to take in hundreds of thousands of people. He was laying the responsibility of welcome and hospitality on small local communities, mm -hmm. people who know each other. And I love that idea because it is so hard for us to think at a national level, but it is much easier for me to call my colleagues on Guilford's, on Guilford's campus and say, hey, maybe we should get together and do this. And so it occurred to me really that he was calling on groups of people who knew each other and who shared values to come together and make a decision to be hospitable and to be welcoming and to use their resources. And to me, that meant a college campus, of course, that's my community. So, mm -hmm. and very much like a city or a parish, a parish is really sort of a, like a, um, a, a group of people that are, um, part of a religious community. Um, so not just not just the church, but the, you know, the people who are in, in that vicinity. And to me, it, it was absolutely analogous to a college or university campus in the sense that we are a small community that live in the same space. We have resources like housing, like clinics, like cafeterias. So we were self-sufficient in the way that a city is or a, a parish is. Right. And of course, we had human resources as well, like people, people, students, faculty, staff, who I think were really eager and wanting to do something because we were all watching in horror, but didn't know what we could do. I think that was the question is, what could I do? And I think every campus of refuge is an answer to that question. What could you do? You are living in a location where refugees are arriving. If you're living in the United States, we are receiving refugees every year, and they are likely going to a location where there are universities and colleges. And so as someone who is on a university or a college, you have the ability to provide a softer landing and a stronger beginning for those new Americans. So this idea, I want to go back to something that you said about our universities and colleges being built on the land of, the, you know, on the lands of the displaced and the dispossessed. Mm -hmm. um, and I think for me, the idea of every campus a refuge, right? Every parish hosts a refugee family. Every campus can host a refugee family because we have all the resources. It started off with that seed of radical hospitality, right? Welcome, embracing the other, embracing the stranger. But over time, really I've come to see it as a form of accountability. So colleges and universities, we should be accountable to the people on whose labor we have been built. Um, these lands that our universities are on belong to people before they belong to us. What has happened to those individuals and how has the creation of higher education institutions displaced others? I mean, we're not simply talking about, or we should, you know, obviously we should be talking about indigenous um, folks, but also, as you said, the communities that have been pushed out because we have built buildings and we have bought neighborhoods that have made it impossible for people to stay in the neighborhoods that are that you know where our universities are, that have made them expensive, too expensive to stay. Um, and so, for me, it is a, a even a, if you can think about it as a form of reparations, right? It is it is a way for us to acknowledge that um, we are accountable to our communities 
and that there is a way in which we can continuously be talking about and thinking about how to engage our communities and how to respect and honor and, and pay back and, and not engage in those practices to begin with, right? So how do we become even more aware of the ways in which our practices on a campus, whether it's expanding or buying more neighbor, you know, property, think about the impact of that, right? And, and um, really rethink the ways in which we expand our institutions but also, um, you know, accountable to the individuals who are being displaced all over the world because of the practices of our own government and other first world countries. That's a um, great point, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So to me, it was really just a, um, a way for higher education institutions to, to you know, they, they talk the talk, diversity, equity, and inclusion. What does that really mean in, in practice? What does that mean in real life? And this is a way to address that. Yeah, no, I definitely, I think when you were talking about radical hospitality, it reminded me of the word you explained in your TED talk, and I'm sure you can explain it better than me. You said, um, I think it's harem. Um, could you expand on that or like talk about that a little bit? Because I really liked, I think it was a yeah, good. Sure. I think I, there's, there's so much to think about when you, when you think about a college or university campus, what it means and what it represents. So when the Pope said every parish host a refugee family. He was saying every small community. And for me, that clicked. A college or university is a small community. We are very much a small town or a city. We have all those resources. But also campuses, specifically colleges and universities, are our ethos is that we are inviolable, safe spaces. So think about your campus culture or my campus culture. Um, students should feel safe on campus. And in fact, um, the way that we talk about campus safety is that you know, it's a place where um, students feel like they belong, they should feel like they belong, and they feel safe. The Arabic word for campus is haram, which means an inviolable safe space, a sanctuary. So even the way we conceptualize a college or university campus is this kind of like a, a sanctuary for people who go there, but why not imagine it also as a sanctuary for our newest community members, right? People who are in our community and not just necessarily students or faculty or staff. So expanding that idea of sanctuary to include others in our community to whom we are accountable and to whom we belong, right? They belong to us and we belong to them. And I think that's fundamental to the Every Campus a Refuge movement is that universities who participate in this are in and create and strengthen deep partnerships with the community. So you, you are part of an ecosystem. You do not exist on a hill, right? right? You're not boarded up or, you know, there isn't a barrier around you. The idea is that you are very much connecting with organizations, individuals, agencies, community members, groups on and off campus to create this constellation, this larger ecosystem of support for everybody including our newest uh, neighbors. Um, so I, I like this idea that we are both a sanctuary, haram. So that's the the, the, the Arabic word for campus is al-haram al-jami'i. Mm. And it's for me, just the beauty as a, as a literature professor of those two words together, which is a sanctuary. And jami'i is the, um, is the word for university, jami'a, which literally in Arabic means the gatherer. So the word for jami'a, which is mosque, and jami'a, which is university, have the same root, which is to gather, to bring together, right? That's and so the idea is that a university gathers, it brings people together in safety. 
And I, I just find that idea just incredibly moving if we live out its full potential that we gather in community and in safety with each other. That is a great point. I That's what I wanted to share with our listeners because then I was watching the TED Talk. I was, it had me, it kind of changed the way I think about campus in general. So now I walk around and I'm like, a refugee family would definitely benefit from just like random things I walk by on campus. I'm like, oh, there's a, you know, clothing driver. There's a food drive going on that would be used. So it would be very effective, you know? So we have different things on campus, but I hope eventually we could um, possibly bring an organization here. I think that would be definitely doable. Um, I think there's students who would be interested. So that's really cool. But yeah, do you want to just go ahead and talk about when you first started Every Campus Refuge? When did that kind of begin? And like how, or what was the process like beginning it on campus? And was it accepted well, I guess? ECAR is very, very much a grassroots effort. And it really is like that on every campus that does this. So um, this idea, which I think of is very basic, you know, because we support students and we host students all the time. It really just is sort of imagining who else can we do this for? Um, So this idea, okay, can Guilford College offer housing and access to resources to a refugee family that's arriving in Greensboro? And I brought this idea to the university or the college, sorry, Guilford College president. um, And she said, yes, she really loved the idea. And we brought in other administrators who were also invested in the idea and we're working through really what that could mean sort of to offer a house on campus. We identified the um, properties on campus that could be used for something like this. And then we just started from sort of the, again, the grassroots. I put out a call to faculty, students and staff. Um, uh, We had info panels, we had meetings, we had call to action gatherings, we had film screenings, we brought in um, experts from the community, resettlement agency staff, community members to talk about the issue and the need. And so really this was in a way very much co-designed by the people who showed up, right? The students who showed up, the faculty who showed up, the community members who showed up, we sort of worked through it together. We've uh, we began um, hosting a refugee on our campus um, in January of 2016. So, um, uh, chaps, uh, he's from Uganda. He was hosted on our campus for about five months, and then we began hosting um, at the same time a Syrian family who arrived in March of that year. We then hosted another Syrian family in July of that year, um, and we've been hosting refugees on Guilford's campus since then. So, nearly 90 refugees from all over the world. Syria, Burundi, Uganda, Rwanda, Venezuela, Colombia, Afghanistan, the DRC, the CAR, um, Iraq, you know, Syria. So, um, I mean, just really representing the the diversity and um, multiplicity and the universe of, of, you know, where people are from in this world. And their backgrounds were incredibly diverse, the languages they spoke, the, their needs, their makeup, the family makeup. We hosted a family of 11 ones and single cases, right? And families of two or three. And over time, we really refined this because we started with a house and a group of volunteers. And then as we worked with families, we realized it would be great if we could also have provide access to the cafeteria or to the gym or to the clinic or, you know, other things. And then students were learning, they were learning by volunteering. And so we thought, well, let's curricularize this, let's institutionalize it, let's make it an actual for credit opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so we designed the minor, Forced Migration and Resettlement Studies minor, where students get credit for doing this work. And other campuses that do this do it in in you know 
it's attached to a certificate or it's attached to a course or it's attached to a, attached to a graduate assistantship or to an independent study. So students are doing this work and learning a lot by working alongside a family, but they're really, you know, gaining a lot of pre-professional experience. They're discerning their careers for the future um, and they're understanding a global issue at the local level. Um, so as we're doing this work, other campuses heard about this. They became interested. We offer them our expertise. And that's kind of what we do now is really provide a lot of resources and support, technical assistance, trainings to universities who want to become every campus or refuge chapters or ECAR chapters. That's amazing. Wow, that is that is really cool. So yeah, on that note, I guess, uh, do you want to start talking about your book? Yeah, sure. So American Refuge, uh, True Stories of the Refugee Experience was published last year in September of 2022. And it really is about um, the refugee experience in nuanced, layered ways. So one of the things that I noticed when I was teaching, because I teach um, courses on refugee issues and forced migration, was that the stories of refugees or the stories that we want to, we want to share with our students about the experiences of folks who are seeking safety and security are really sort of cut off. You know, they might represent a person's life in a refugee camp or they might represent a person's life during conflict, but you never really get the fullness of, the, of a human and their life before, who they were, what they were, who they still are. <laughs> Even though they have this tag associated with them that says refugee, that's not who they are. And so I wanted to write a book that represented the broad spectrum of the experience of a human being who at some point in their life had to seek safety and security. And so the book is organized into chapters um, of you know a group of people that you meet um, first in the life before, what it was like to leave, to live in countries that they love, they absolutely loved beautiful homes, right? With wonderful people and family members and friends and jobs and, you know, uh, just amazing experiences. And then that moment that causes them uh, the pain, the conflict, that moment of rupture, like whether it's a war or occupation uh, or a genocide. And then what it was like to have to flee across a border and that journey and then living in a refugee camp. What is what is life like in a refugee camp, right? Often, you know, we don't necessarily get a lot of the details. Um, you know, we get snap, sort of just snapshots of, of that experience, but these are more detailed. And then what it's like to be approved for resettlement, to come to the United States, that journey from the refugee camp or the country in which they're in right now to the US. And then what it's like five years later, right? We sometimes sort of um, stop the refugee experience, uh, you know, after someone, maybe when someone's in a refugee camp or once someone arrives, but what does that mean for someone after five years after they've been here? What has the resettlement been like? Um, one thing I will, um, I want to point out is that the stories in the book are actually the stories of people who participated in the Every Campus a Refuge program at Guilford College. So these are refugees that were hosted on Guilford's campus as well as um, a student who participated in the program and who came to this country as a refugee. It also contains the stories of my mother and grandmother who were both refugees from Palestine to Jordan, 
I knew all of these stories, of course, because all of these people were individuals who I'm friends with, I'm connected to. So obviously my mother, I knew her story. I knew the stories of the folks that we hosted. The the the, the, the book uh, is the story of Um Fihmi, the mother in the first Syrian family that we hosted. Marwa and Ali, uh, the mom and the dad in the Iraqi family that we hosted. Blaze, who's from Burundi. Chaps, who's from uh, Uganda, and Riri, who's from uh, uh, Myanmar, um, and then my mother. So these are like seven seven stories, as well as my grandmother's story, tangentially related to my grandmother. So these are all stories I knew because I worked with these people, and we were really good friends. But they had shared those stories with me in confidence when I when we were you know getting to know each other five six years right. ago, and so I didn't want to share the stories that they had um, entrusted to me. So I actually officially interviewed. I reached out and let them know that I was interested in writing a book. Would they be interested in sharing their stories with the public? And these are the people who said yes. And so I officially interviewed them, including my mother, um, for the purpose of this book. And it was really interesting to me during the interview process. I interviewed the people who spoke Arabic in Arabic and then interviewed the people um, who spoke English in English. And it was really interesting to me during the course of the interview um, that, you know, Blaze or Chaps would say something like, I know you know this, but you can't put it in the book. And it was really a, a, an illustrative moment for me why it's important to get someone's consent, right. <laughs> you know, to share a private information because, yeah. you know, they needed, they right? I mean, that was, it, it was obvious to me, but it, you know, it was a good reminder mm-hmm. that I, you know, I had to go through this process because clearly there would have been some things that I had known um, that I shouldn't have shared, right? And I needed to be told those are not things that you can share. Um, and another interesting thing is that when I interviewed my mother, she revealed some things to me that she had never told me before. So in the context of an official interview, she felt empowered to talk about some of her experiences as a, as a child in Jordan. But these were not things that came up in conversation and never things that I had heard around the kitchen table or at home. So that interview process was really interesting. But so that's the book. The book is the stories of those individuals Again, the broad spectrum of that experience. And I also really wanted to write a book that didn't pander to the spectacle of tragedy. So a lot of books about refugees, as you can imagine, are very based in the tragic. Trauma porn is like a, a word. Yes. Like at the podcast, try to avoid. So yeah, I get what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. I want it to be based in their dignity and their agency and their pride. And so I wanted to write a book that really was just very plain and, and told the truth plainly in all its complexity. And I really wanted to write a book that busted myths about refugees. It's very educational. So this is kind of a short book that that grounds the fact in a story so that I'm not lecturing at you, but I but you've learned. You learn that right. actually refugees don't get a lot of resources. These are the kind of resources they get when they when they come here. This is what it's like to live in a refugee camp. This is what it's like to cross a border. Um, but you learn it through these various stories of these individuals, um, um, which I think is a, is is, is m- much more memorable than having someone tell you sort of factually or just, you know, descriptively what that's like. Yes, no, I definitely agree. I think that's, that's something we've been trying to focus on um, this season, focusing on like art or any form of creative expression, because it kind of removes the person from just what happened to them. So like the art could be we've been trying to say like, your art doesn't have to be about being a refugee. Like your art can just be your art and then you can share it with us, you know, things like that. So I, that's what I noticed about when I was reading your book, I haven't read it yet. Um, The part of life before, I think that's a huge part of the refugee story that doesn't get told a lot. So I'm excited to read that part in the book. Definitely. It's not shared in media. I think often like, you know, that people 
want to be in their home country. Exactly. I think that's one of the myths I really wanted to bust is that, you know, refugees leave countries that they don't love or they don't want. I mean, that's absolutely untrue. Refugees leave by force and they leave countries they love and they leave beautiful homes. Right. So when you're writing the book, this writing process, did you learn anything maybe you didn't know about yourself or didn't know about kind of what you imagined refugees to be, I guess, because I know you work with refugees, but even like writing their stories, did you learn anything new? Yeah, no. I mean, that's, I think that's a great question. I did learn again, that storytelling is so important. Telling stories is crucial It because so much of the information that we get can really desensitize us. So when we hear 110 million, it's like, it's almost impossible to sort of imagine what that could mean and how we could contribute to a solution. But when you meet a person who comes to your town and you see the ways in which they talk about how much it meant for them to have a cup of tea with a student volunteer, then you begin to imagine yourself, to see yourself in this landscape, either as a, as a person who would, love, would like to be part of this community as a, a new member or as a student or, you know, however. So I learned a lot about storytelling. I learned that you can't take things for granted. So the interview process really taught me that, mm-hmm. that, there, that there were things that, um, you know, it's important to get, again, consent and permission to be able to share these stories. Um, I, um, I learned how to, um, and this is going to be very writer, writerly, I learned how to place myself as a person in relationship to these people that I was writing about. Mm-hmm. And I am the person who's writing the book. I am the person who's interviewing. I am the person who's structuring. So I want you to imagine the interviews. The in- interviews were long. Every interview was maybe two hours. And that two hours was meandering because I didn't ask questions that were, I didn't want to ask questions that were triggering. So right. I would say, tell me about your life in America, right? Or tell me about your childhood or, you know what I mean? I didn't want to say, why did you become a refugee? I just wanted that to come out if it, if they wanted it to come out. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it was meandering. So you know, I had to sit there and two hours of an interview is like pages and pages and pages of transcription. Um, and so I had to learn what part of the story to surface, what part of the story I can let go of. And then I had to put all of those in different chapters, right? So Ali's story and Marwa's story, I had to take the pieces and then Chep's and then Blaze and then my mom and then Riri and then take the pieces that fit together and then put them in the life before. And then the pieces, right? Because it's, right. it's you, don't, you don't meet the entire person in each chapter. You meet all of them in the life before and then all of them at the moment of rupture and then all of them crossing a border. So I, I learned you know, that how to put that puzzle together, which was an interesting challenge. And again, I really learned where I belong in this process. So how do I acknowledge my role as the listener, as the writer, but not make it about me and not center myself? And so that was always fun to sort of see where I'm overstepping and where I was like, this isn't about you, Dia, (laughs) step back. And that was, that was, that was fun. I, I learned a lot about storytelling. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. That's something we've been trying to practice in the podcast, especially when interviewing people who are telling like really tragic stories. You know, it's like I shouldn't tell you how sad your story is. You know what I mean? Like you don't, you know, that's yeah, that's really important, I think, for anyone sharing refugee stories. 
So did anyone, like everyone who you interviewed, did any of them choose to read the story or read the book or? Oh yeah. Um, yes. All of them got a copy of the book and Marwa would send me pictures of herself, like crying after she read the book because she loved it so much. And Marwa and I are really good friends and I see her all the time. And I love going to her house, which I do quite frequently. And the book is like on the shelf, oh, like wow. sort of in, like it has, you know, pride of place. Um, the artwork on the cover, by the way, mm-hmm. Um, is by one of the uh, refugees that's in the book. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so Ali is an artist and a calligraphist. Um, and I asked him to design the cover of the book and it's Lady Liberty with the word refugee in Arabic inside of it. Um, and so I really love that that Ali's artwork is on the cover and that the image um, sort of speaks to the refugee experience that, you know, it's like the promise and premise of America, like give me your tired, right? this idea that we are a welcoming nation. And we are in so many ways. But then when refugees get here, it's such a challenge. Really, the experience is so challenging that it is, they, they're both hyper-visible and invisible. So the word lajit in the in the artwork, if you don't know Arabic, you can't understand it. You don't see it. You don't know what it is. It looks like her dress, like Lady Liberty's dress. Um, so that representation of the of the refugee experience is kind of invisible in, in, in America. The individual refugee experience is invisible in America, but hyper-visible certainly in the politics, like the way right. people talk about refugees. Um, so yes, yes, they've read the book and really like it. It's really cool. Yeah. Well, I was, you know, when you're thinking about, you were saying, you know, it's very prevalent in politics. I was thinking how applicable it would be to just, I mean, there's always, you know, refugees, so it's always applicable and the book should always be read, but um for me, I was thinking, you know, recently with all the events happening in Palestine and all of the, and then obviously other, um, you know, mon- current events that are happening where children are being impacted. I think, you know, this is a very important story for people to read to kind of humanize refugees. Because when you're talking about the numbers, I think that's something I've been going through recently. We have um, news stories we do and, you know, this, listing the numbers of people being affected doesn't do it justice, I feel like. Um so I think this is something people, everyone should read. I, I'm going to read it soon, hopefully. Let me know what you think of it. I will. I will definitely. We'll also definitely post it um, on our Instagram. We want to kind of share all these different, you know, ways of creative expression. So that I'm excited about. Um, do you have any other comments you'd like to add before we go? Anything you'd like to read the listeners to know? Yes. If you're at USC uh, um, or any other university and you're listening to this, please reach out. Uh, so that we can make your campus into a refuge. You can find us on everycampusarefuge.net. Great. Awesome. I'll definitely share that link um, on our Instagram as well and send it to a few. I know there's a few other like refugee aid organizations here on campus that would definitely be interested. So hopefully we can get that, get that at least started. Um, but I'll check that around. That would be awesome. And if you can tag Every Campus a Refuge, we're on Insta and Twitter and all the platforms. Great. Okay, great. Thank you so much again for this interview. This was amazing. Wonderful. Thanks, great. Claire. It was great talking with you. Thank you so Same. much. Of course. Bye. That was Dia Abdo talking about her experience founding Every Campus a Refuge, as well as her new book, American Refuge, True Stories of the Refugee Experience. We will provide a link to her book and the Every Campus a Refuge website to find new ways to get involved. If you like this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com or at our University of South Carolina email address, sosrpa at mailbox.sc.edu. You can find us on social media at Refuge Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. This show is produced by undergraduate students at the University of South Carolina. Your host for this week was me, Claire Mattis. 
and this episode was edited by Shireen Carr and produced by Claire Mattis. Your executive producers are Claire Mattis and Victoria Halsey. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.